Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, July 8th, 2021. I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. And I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves. Ashley, we have um, one of those interview shows today as I will be speaking with Robert L. McLaughlin and Sally E. Perry at the end of this episode. They are both college professors and way smarter than me, but they also (laughs) co-wrote a book called Broadway Goes to War, American Theater During World War II. Um, We did this uh, episode, we did this interview at the end of last week, so just before the 4th of July. Nice, yeah. Um, It was a really good conversation and they had just fantastic insights uh, into how theater um, was really an outlier in terms of the entertainment media yeah. uh, at the time. So very interesting conversation. So stick around to that. Ashley, um, Grace is on vacation, as people have probably noticed um, this week. But James and I will be wrapping up the week tomorrow because you are going to a real live IRL in-person indoor show. Yeah, I what are can't you seeing? believe it. I'm seeing Jackie Hoffman's new off-Broadway play, Waiting in the Wings for Macera. Uh, I am at the cell. I am very, very excited. It's, an, oh, it's the opening night, too, which is doubly weird. That it's like I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm seeing a real show and I'm going to a real opening night again. Just very bizarre to me still. Opening night or first preview? Opening night. Opening night. Is it very cool? Well, have a great time. (sighs) James and I will wrap up the week on today on Broadway tomorrow. But uh, it's weird that people are going back to shows, but they are. Yeah. Yep. Speaking. Speaking, this is not going to be as good of a transition as my one Speaking yesterday. Speaking of but, waitress is back. <laughs> no. Speaking of things that are back, Ashley, all of our waitress questions from yesterday's episode were answered on Wednesday morning as the show announced that it would be joining Town and reopening on September 2nd for a limited run just through January 9th. And as anticipated... They are moving from the Brooks Atkinson Theater over to the Ethel Barrymore Theater. The show's composer and multi-time star, Sarah Bareilles, will reopen the musical as Jenna Hunterson, but she will only play the role for six more weeks, going just through October 17th. There was no word yet on who will replace her, but as I think I've mentioned on the show before, I'd been hearing some rumors that Jesse Mueller, who obviously originated the role, might be willing to go back on her stated desire never to return to a role that she'd already done um, and put that aside because of obviously extenuating circumstances and step back into the diner. No other casting for the show's return was announced, but it is important to remember, as we've seen with Waitress multiple times, not that they've extended because they were open-ended, but we've seen Sarah Bareilles come back to the show and then leave and then come back to the show. They don't have a lot of flexibility with this because Paradise Square is currently set to begin performances at the Barrymore on February 2nd. I don't see... Yeah, I don't see the, the, the landlords kicking... Paradise Square out, no, um, and, and no. they need those five weeks to to uh, to move out, and then to move in and to tech and all that stuff. So it looks like unless waitress moves again, Ashley. And again, I mentioned yesterday I'd heard off Broadway rumors, sure. Um, but it looks like this is a hard and fast limited run, which makes sense. I mean, because it's not like it's its first run, and it ran however many years. How how many years did it run Three again? Or four. Three or four. I was thinking four it was four. I, I was thinking it was four. So I mean, it had a good long run. So it's not like it's a show that they closed down after a very short just, run just to begin with. Four years, yeah, just okay. about March March twenty sixth. 
2016 through January of 2020. Yeah, so it's not like they closed down a short run and are bringing it back as like a revival kind of situation. They closed a long-running show and they're bringing it back as a limited-run situation. So to try and extend it any further it would be a little weird. I mean, this is very much like a special, you know, it's a special event kind of thing. Like, we're reopening Broadway. We're trying to get people in seats. We want to do something that was incredibly popular with its original composer and it's in one of its main stars. I think it's great that they're doing this. I also simultaneously think, because I saw a lot of outcry on Wednesday, I think if after Sarah Bareilles leaves, they don't replace <laughs> with a woman of color, they're going to have a massive problem here. Um, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. Sure. I think, I think Jesse Mueller might be the exception. I think if the original star comes back, um, but also depends on how long Jesse Mueller wants to go. I mean, I think, I think, um, one thing that would be big, they've got to sell tickets is the thing with this. This is such a short run. They need to make money. I think something that was very close to happening during the show's original run that would sell a poop ton of tickets would be is if they brought back Nicolette Robinson as Jenna and and convinced her IRL husband to to play Dr. Pometer, which I heard at the time was very, very close to happening. And we speculated it about it back on the show when it was happening. Also, they've had a child since Nicolette was last in the show. I I saw Broadway Girl NYC Laura Hayward mentioning on Twitter the other day or on on Wednesday that maybe their real life daughter could play Lulu uh, at the end of the show. So it could be a family affair. That would be something that I I think would sell tickets. Um, But in in whole, I agree with your point 100%. I think Jesse Mueller might stem some of that if she does come back to it. But I don't, it I is don't a- know about that. I mean, I agree on the side of like, you know, especially like waitress mega fans at this point. But I think if you're right. going to have an industry that's, you know, over the past 12 months has been half acidly talking about how they're going to do better when they come back by actually casting people where they need to. And then their big, you know, their biggest selling thing that they're promoting other than Bruce Springsteen, which is obviously has no opportunity for other casting. <laughs> recast, recast Bruce with a person of with color. With Robinson, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I think if you're doing that and you're trying to promote the show, it's automatically going back on any kind of, you know, the, uh, any, any kind of talk that you've promised immediately. Well, I think it also depends on what they do with the rest of the casting. Do they actually For return sure. um, the original role? Oh, I can't think of the the glasses uh, server. But, well, the character, yeah, I was gonna say Dawn. If they if they actually go back to casting um, an Asian American woman or uh, any person of color, because Kamiko Glenn originated the role, and after that, yep. it was more or less just played by white people. Um, <laughs> that's, and, that's pretty much waitress. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if they do better in some of those other areas, um, it might not be as big of a deal. But I agree with you. I would love to see mm. um, a woman of color, and they've really only had one. I mean, really, I think Nicolette was the only yeah. one. Yeah. So. Anyway, speaking of bringing back things um, that might need a little bit of a cosmetic overhaul in terms of racial (laughs) representation. Yesterday, Deadline reported that the long-developing movie remake of Guys and Dolls has found a director and Oscar winner Bill Condon. Condon, of course, directed the film adaptation of Dreamgirls. He wrote or co-wrote the script of the Chicago film and The Greatest Showman. He won an Oscar um, for pinning the script to the film Gods and Monsters. And 
and probably most importantly for a certain segment of the population, he directed twi- the the Twilight Saga oh, colon wow. Breaking Dawn parts one and two. Gotta and of course him. on I I don't know. I have no idea. Were those the ones? Was Anna Kendrick I, still in those, have, or was she gone by then? I have literally no idea. That's the only reason I would care. So if Anna Kendrick was in it. <laughs> he also, of course, directed the Broadway revival um, and did some little rewrites of Sideshow, a show that, that was very much a passion project for him. Um, but actually, I saw you saw people talking about Waitress Online. I saw some mm-hmm. people uh, online asking versions yeah, of the same question. Why do we need this? Who asked for this? And let me answer you. <laughs> let me answer this. Me. I asked for this. <laughs> I love Guys and Dolls. I, I, ju- yeah. I just talked about it the other day in an Audible ad. The original film is, I mean, the, the stage show itself is like perfect. It's the perfect yes, show. The original agreed. film was fantastic. But that's not going anywhere. A new film doesn't erase the original with with Marlon and Gene. Um, but we love revivals of shows on Broadway all the time. We sure. love seeing new stars and new interpretations. So I'm not sure why this is such a problem for people. I'm very much looking forward to this film, assuming it ever actually happens. And yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing who they might cast and how they yeah. might do it differently. Same thing with West Side Story. You know, they, yeah. people were like, why do we need this? The first one's amazing. Yes, it was. And now they're taking a completely different perspective on this sure. um, and made some changes and all that stuff. So I, I'm, I'm all for this, I think. I didn't see as much of an outcry about this. What I did see about it was, you know, kind of proposed changes. And I forgot who had a tweet thread about it. Um, but just in terms of like, especially women roles more than anything, I think there are sure. definitely going to be things that need to be re- rewritten in that show. I think, you know, making it less white, especially is going to need to be done. But yeah, I love guys and dolls. I'm, I'm okay with this. I, I'm Good. really interested in seeing what the casting is going to be. I, you know, there's a part of me that hopes they work JK Simmons in in some way, but I'm they also very to. biased. <laughs> yeah. They need to work J.K. Simmons into this. Like, Wouldn't that be I mean, great? Just, just, just let him be Benny South he can Street. Do anything. Like, yeah. Why not? Why not just have him be Benny South Street again? Yeah, like exactly. that is so perfect. He It'd could be also so be glorious. a really good uh, Uncle Arvad or yeah. Ar- Arvad. Yeah, like yeah. that. That would work. Um, but Put yeah. J.K. Simmons in everything. Get J.K. in there. Get get yeah. Peter Gallagher in there. Get Nathan Lane in oh, there. I'd be so like, happy. Just get Ernie Sabella. Get the 1990. Yes. Just, just do it with the 1992 just do it cast. Again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just do a pro tape. It's fine. The whole thing. Yes. Faith. We've got to get Faith back in there. Yes. Oh, anyway. All right. So we're pro guys and dolls. So yeah, I'm glad obviously. we can continue yes. during the show. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> finally, Ashley, before we get into the interview yesterday disney on broadway announced that they would reopen the new amsterdam theater with a benefit concert for the actors fund called live at the new am does anybody call the new amsterdam the new am no like that's like stop trying to make fetch happen exactly knock it off Anyway, this show will feature former Disney on Broadway stars Ashley Brown, Michael James Scott, Kissy Simmons, and Josh Strickland. It'll just be a few dates. It'll play July 22nd through the 25th. Um, this, this stable of, um, you know, former Disney on Broadway stars, they do concert like, like this quite often, like all over the country, but especially, uh, down here in Orlando at Disney World at the annual festival of the arts. So I get why they have them coming in and doing it, much like Disney has hired the Broadway Princess Party to do Mm -hmm. their Disney Princess concerts. It's a, it's an act that they already have. They already know, but I am kind of surprised that they're going to, 
quote-unquote, and this is from their press release, reopen the New Amsterdam Theater, and they didn't try to get some of the bigger names um, for from Disney on Broadway to do this, uh, especially yeah. because like some of these people aren't even the biggest names from for the shows. roles that they play. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Ashley Brown yeah. and Michael James Scott, they're great, but like you know, you get Laura Michelle Kelly mm-hmm. and James Monroe Eichelhart, like they're yeah. probably bigger names. Not was, no offense to them, they're no, great. I've interviewed not. Michael, I've they're interviewed Ashley. Great. They're awesome, but I'm just kind of surprised. You're speaking. You're speaking the truth, and I was actually going to ask that. I was like, is this their final cast? Are they going to have more people as well? I would feel like they would have more people. It, it does as not well. appear from the press release that they're adding anybody else. It, it appears that it's just honest, going to be this. Group. Honestly, bizarre uh, to me as far as like this is our reopening event, but. All right, you do you you know get your money, <laughs> Disney, because you simply don't have enough. Well, th- it is a benefit concert. This is this is all going towards the I actors' know. fund. So. I know, but I was just thinking, like, you might be able to get more people and raise more money for the actors' fund if you got if JMI you or Casey bigger, and some Patty, slightly or bigger names, maybe get Heather yeah. Headley. Get Heather oh. to come back from, I mean, from that's Lion an, King. That's an evergreen statement for any concert ever. Get Heather Headley. Yeah, yeah every time. But all right, let's uh, wrap up the news section before we get into the interview by talking about our good friends over at audible.com. Yeah, we keep talking about how much we love Audible. We keep t- talking about how great they are with their selection. You can find the largest selection of audiobooks, original entertainment, and thousands of popular and binge worthy podcasts. And that is because they are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. We've also talked about their newest plan, Audible Plus, which gives you full access to their popular Plus catalog. You can listen to thousands and thousands and probably even thousands more of popular audiobooks, original entertainment, podcasts, and that includes ad-free versions of your favorite shows and exclusive series. Yeah, there's two shows I want to point out to you. One, because I think it's still technically nominated for a Tony. The Sound Ooh. Inside by Adam <gasps> yes, Rapp yes. is available on there. It's a two-hander with Mary Louise Parker and Will it's Hockman. amazing. Yeah, it's such a good show. Um, that is available for you to listen to. It was directed on Broadway and for Audible by the great David Cromer. Nice. Um, so that is on there. The other one is one that's a little more off the radar. It is a, a one-woman show. It was written by Aaron Mark, who has done a number of off-Broadway one-person shows, including my beloved Empanada Lopez which starred mm-hmm. Daphne Rubin Vega, which was turned into um, a podcast called The Horror of Dolores Roach, which is now being turned into mm, a TV nice. show. But he wrote a one-woman show called The Vanishing Negative, and it starts the immortal, the incredible Betty Buckley. So <gasps> yes. that's on there as well. So The Vanishing uh, the vanishing Negative and The Sound Inside, highly recommend you check both of those out. Definitely. Visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio to 500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio to 500-500. One more time in case you needed to grab a pen and write it down, visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio to 500-500 so that you can start your free free trial today. All right, Ashley, as promised, it is now time for us to head into the conversation about Broadway Goes to War American Theater during World War II with my conversation with uh, professors Robert L. McLaughlin and Sally E. Perry. 
The idea of the book um, centers on this, this, as you guys often say in the book, this myth that during World War II, um, everything in the country was um, homogenous and everybody agreed on this war effort, but that the American theater was one of the few independent voices in the country in that time that actually and actively engaged in the topic of war for those who might not understand what the rest of this media landscape was like, can you explain what the film and radio and news media was like then and how they got to be that way when the American theater was a little bit more independent and had a little bit different perspective uh, on the topics of the time? Sure. The the movies and the radio probably the two most important uh, you know pop cultural media during the war years and uh, the, you know the important thing to stress is that you know they jumped into this very willingly they wanted to support the war effort uh they wanted to put out uh films and have things on the radio that were going to encourage people to to do their part to tell people you know why it was important that we win this war why it was important that we support our allies why it was important that we defeat our enemies uh, those are the narratives that really um, uh, dominated the popular culture during the war years. Uh, and there was also, a, you know, a variety of government agencies, most particularly the Office for Information, that it, it didn't have censorship power, but it, it was very insistent uh, that the pop culture <laughs> media adopt. Uh, do, do its part in terms of getting these these messages across to the to the general public. But again, so for the most part, th- these pop cultural media were very willing to do this. Um, the theater was a little different because, first of all, I think because you know it, it played to so many fewer people a week, say, than the movies did or radios did. Uh, the Office of War Information didn't pay much attention to what was happening in the theater, um, and also there was. Coming through the 1930s with the uh, activist labor plays and uh, other, you know, the Federal Theater Project and uh, a lot of other very politically active theater that was the result, I think, of the Depression, there was already a tradition of, of engaging ideas, controversial ideas in very pointed ways. That That's quite true. Also, I mean, you know, when you think of the movies, the they're, they're bigger conglomerates of uh of people, of producers, of investors, and so forth. And in the theater, one could do a play or a musical on a lot on a lot smaller scale, and um, you know you would need fewer investors, and you could you could also get it up more quickly. I mean, except for, except for some of the B movies in Hollywood, it took a while to actually put a movie together. And if you were doing a war movie where there were you know tanks and planes and troops and whatnot, that took even more time. And concomitantly. Um, if you were doing that, you would want the cooperation of the Army or the Navy or the, the Army Air Forces to help. And so obviously you would want to show the military mm. at their best. Mm. Since, since the theater was not, you know, could not show like the, the scope of war um, in terms of battles and so forth, they didn't have to have that same kind of um, sort of cozy relationship with the military mm. that, that Hollywood did. Yeah. In Hollywood, there were a lot more cooks that went into yeah. everything than there were on Broadway. You know, if it, on Broadway, if you had a playwright and a producer who believed in him, you could probably get the play on. So during this time, and it starts, as you kind of mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, even before the war itself kind of came to, or the United States came to the war, I guess. But 
there seems to have been a, a little bit more of a fractured approach, different perspectives in the the myriad of plays. And there's an appendix in in the back of the book, which I, I want to come back to in a little bit later, um, of all the plays during this time that, you know, starting in the early 30s, going through the end of the war that dealt with war. And I was kind of overwhelmed by how many there were. I, I was surprised by this. What were the perspectives in the topics that went through? Because I, I imagine it, so many of them had varying focuses and, and weren't just on the singular topic of war itself. Well, that's that's true. I mean, you know, the, the theater could provide a lot more nuanced um, approaches. And what's really interesting is that in the 30s, um, the American theater comes to grips with fascism, both here and abroad, in a much more pointed way than Hollywood did. Because, you know, Hollywood shipped its product out to Europe, including Germany, which was a big consumer of American films. And so they didn't want to insult their customers overseas. American theater did not have that issue. So uh, plays that attacked fascism, attacked Germany by name and, 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 and uh, Nazism were a part of American theater from the mid thirties on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we're thinking of plays that deal with the war, we're not necessarily limiting ourselves to ones that deal with the military. The, you know, there were a lot of social issues, domestic social issues that were caused by the war, uh, juvenile delinquency, you know, hasty marriages, um, the, um, housing shortage i mean the, the 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 peacetime draft there were all sorts of uh, uh topics that became uh explored in the theater uh that were caused by the war yeah you kind of have a whole uh, section of the book about what is happening in the 48 states at the time during the war and all of the societal changes that that the 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 war and the fighting overseas brought back home how how did those changes as the war effort or i guess as the war without the united states involvement ramped up and then as the united states got involved how did that change what was seen on stage well i i think that one of the things that you see is in the plays leading up to the war there was a lot of interest in fascism both here and abroad and the the multitude of ways that it was uh, explained as we got in, as, as we get into the war, you know, the first, the, you can almost look at um, theater kind of like movies in, in a couple of different parts. When the war is about to start, there's a different sort of vibe than there is in the middle of the war sure. as opposed to, as opposed to the end of the war. So um, early on, I think um, especially when it's well in England, it would have been the phony war for us. It was when the United States was neutral but doing Lend-Lease and things like that. There were there were a number of actually musicals and comedies that dealt with, it's kind of fun to be part of the military and part, part of, you know, <laughs> part, part of the American uh, way of helping. So one of the very early uh, musicals uh, from 1941, this is, so this is before we get to the war, is Let's, Let's Face It, which... Um, mm -hmm was Danny Kaye's first big starring role, you know, big hit ran well over 500 performances, had a lot of catchy tunes by Cole Porter. Um, but it was about being drafted and, you know, it's kind of fun to be drafted and hang out with the guys and march around and have fun. <laughs> well, yeah. I read that section in the book. There's, there's a lot of, um, sexual escapades in, in that, in that show as well, which kind of, 
reflects some of the stuff there. But it's it's interesting. You talk about musicals, and it's interesting that you brought up a, a musical because I think so much of what American theater we think of during that time now is about the musicals on the town, which obviously happened during mm-hmm. the war, but then even post-war with um, with South Pacific and The Sound of Music and things like that. But was there, you know, this differentiation between straight plays and musicals and how they uh, approached things? Nowadays, we think of you know, most musicals, not all, but most are musical comedies. Was that still the case there? Or did, were there serious musical theater pieces about the war actually leading up to and during it as well? That's a good question. Uh, leading up to the war, there's uh, Johnny Johnson. Yeah, Johnny Johnson. Which the group theater did. Kurt Weil wrote the music for that. Uh, and it's about a a very naive fellow who is uh, committed pacifist until he hears that President Wilson says that this is going to be a war to end all wars. And then he goes over there to to fight because he thinks this is such a great thing to fight for. And he ends up in a, an insane asylum. And, uh, he gets out just in time to see the, us getting ready for the next war. That's the probably the most. That's that's probably the most serious one, and you know that, and and that's that's also whether you're talking about musicals or straight plays, kind of a, a a theme of a lot of them in the years leading up to the war is the idea that the last war is always in the always in the background of what's what's about to happen. So whether we're whether we're talking about that because in Johnny Johnson actually the tanks have a song and they're the the guns actually sing to Johnny and to the people who are getting ready to go back to war. <laughs> very Kurt Vile. Yeah, very Kurt Vile. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, On the Town, of course, is, is a very funny musical, but it, it has its serious undertones to the, the fighting the clock. You know, we've got this one day to live before we have to go back to the mm-hmm. war and knows what's going to happen then. Um, but a lot of the musicals, I mean, there was Irving Berlin's This is the Army, which was, you know, it, it, an amazing undertaking and extremely flag waving in, in the in the best way um and there were a lot of burlesques kind of had a, a comeback uh, hmm. uh, musical reviews of various kinds that uh had sketches and songs that in, in various ways were involved with the war effort oh yeah you know i mean, kind kind of like the uh, the children of hell's a popping basically yeah sons i mean so olson and johnson for example had hmm. sons of fun and things like that but you know a lot of men were conscripted during the war. And so if they were coming to New York because they were getting ready to go on a ship and go overseas, or, um, you know, there were not, not as many leading men. So having burlesque shows, having musical reviews of various sorts, which, you know, would have music, would have comedy, would also have sometimes have pointed sketches. Uh, they, those are very popular and they were also very cheap to do. So if you're a producer, you can make a lot of money very quickly by, throwing on a couple of things there was you know there there were even um some amateur groups that were able to get to broadway because oh wow <laughs> I, I know <laughs> because there were because there were so many fewer people available to do shows so we we see we see a we see a couple of those they were they had titles like of v we sing and that was that's one of my favorites <laughs> uh, but you know the the really interesting musical news during the war here is Oklahoma, uh, which yeah. doesn't have anything special to do with the war, but it was obviously the the one that was getting all the attention and uh, uh, 
drawing. They, 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 I believe they kept a couple of rows of uh, yeah. I was going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a, a a lot of efforts from uh, Oklahoma and the producers and Rogers and Hammerstein to get soldiers in there who were on leave, like in uh, in on the town. Was there a conscientious um, role that the shows and the producers played in terms of? doing things in New York, like you mentioned, people who are on leave or who are getting ready to ship out. Was there specific things that were done for them, whether it was getting them in the theater or specific shows that really um, tended to attract those audiences of soldiers um, either on leave or before they headed out? Well, um, I think that some some of that need was met by the stage door canteen because a lot of uh, people, a lot of the actors and performers worked at the stage door canteen after the shows, but yeah, there were, there were uh, seats, there were seats for them. Um, things like this is the army certainly were trying to support the whole idea of, of how important the military was. And the burlesques were very popular with servicemen. Sure. And, yeah, and it, was also, it was also a great way to sell war bonds. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> there were uh, a number of shows that the actors would go out at like, and go like to the Brooklyn Navy Yards at lunchtime and put on an abbreviated version of the show or put on, you know, do a couple of musical numbers. Um, th- this was very common uh, mm-hmm. to the act- the actors, the performers doing their parts to uh, to try to go around the city and, and help people who entertain people who were involved in the war effort. Yeah, especially those who couldn't get to the theater because they're of their work schedules and so forth. Right. We'll find the romance and danger waiting in it beneath the Broadway line. But we pair on our chest, so when we like the best are the nice. Sidelight nights, New York, New York, a hell of a town. The Bronx is up, but the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a hell of a town. So uh, I mentioned earlier the appendix in the back of the book, which uh, being the the kind of um, theater and history nerd that I am, I I loved this as I kind of scrolled through. But so many of them I'm I'm just unfamiliar with. Um, you know, there are some of the musicals that are maybe a little bit more um, well known during that time, um, but. I, I wondered, and, and you know, I see things like uh, the skin of our teeth, which obviously um, is, is fairly well known today. But it, if there were a few shows that were kind of emblematic of what the American theater and Broadway was doing during this time, that maybe have fallen out of favor with folks, and they don't, you know, don't recall them as well, were there, you know, one or two or three that really stick to the top of your mind about what? was actually happening on stages during this period in American history? Well, that's a really good question. I'd say certainly early on the war, something like Lillian Hellman's Watch on the Rhine, um, hmm. you know, that, 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 that's occasionally still done. A, a very yeah. movie was made out of it. But that's one that is warning Americans not to be so naive about the world situation and that you need to be prepared and you need to be careful because the, the sort of tentacles of fascism are creeping in to this country as as well as abroad, and, and one can't just sort of isolate oneself and hope it all goes away. So I, I'd say for the middle, for the, for the beginning of the war, that's probably a good one. There are two terrific ones from the end of the war. Uh, a play called "Deep Are the Roots," which is about a uh, a black serviceman becomes an officer, and what happens to him when he returns home? To his mother works in the home of a southern senator, and uh, you know he gets 
back to this fairly small town and everybody expects him to behave like he did before he went away. Well, he's seen the world now. He's fought for his country. He uh, wants to be yeah. treated differently and um, if things don't go well. Uh, but that's that's a very powerful play. And uh, then there's also Truckline Cafe, Maxwell Anderson, about uh, returning servicemen um, and trying to repair the fractured relationships with their wives. Uh, it was a uh, Marlon Brando was in the original production. Hmm. Um, and that's that's extremely powerful as well. Yeah, I would I would love to see a production of it. It, it didn't do very well at the time. Um, there was there was. You know, as as the war was ending, and this was true in film as well as theater, you get people got kind of sick of the war, and there there's kind of there's kind of a turn away because a lot of playwrights want to talk about what happens during the homecoming, how people are readjusting, and so forth, and sometimes that didn't really um, connect to audiences because they were tired of hearing about it. Another exception would be something like um, Soldier's Wife about a woman who's, you know, basically she's had to deal with life while her husband has been away in the service and sure. he come, he's injured, he comes back and he's really uncomfortable because she's become very self-sufficient. Well, you know, she pays the bills. She, if things break, she fixes them. Uh, you know, she, she's become an independent woman and how to deal with a relationship where he feels all of a sudden very superfluous. Uh, I think that that's, that's a tension that you really see in plays toward, towards the end of the war. What happens when society is trying to go back and everybody wants it to be the way that it was and it can't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a really interesting way to phrase that because it kind of transitions into this question that I had kind of extrapolating from the book itself. You talk about how life in the United States uh, changed following the war, and so too has the American theater changed um, in the subsequent eighty or you know eight decades or whatever um, it's been. We see Broadway now as a much more homogenized commercial space than than perhaps it was back then, but that doesn't mean that American theater is as homogenized as Broadway is, we still see a lot of these um, varying voices uh, happening that might have at the time, as you said, because there just weren't as many people to put shows on um, that, that might've played there, but we're not seeing them on Broadway. Do you see, as you look at theater as the whole, um, any through lines from the end of this war period into what happened next, whether that's in, you know, the, the fifties and sixties and seventies or today that you can kind of trace back to this independence and, and this really inquisitive, um, uh, approach to American life that we might not see on Broadway anymore, but is still very much present in the theater as a whole. Well, I think one of the things that we see um, at the end of the war in, in theater, and it's um, Hollywood was much more timid about that, is, is um, issues connected with uh, race and ethnicity. And I, f- I found that really fascinating. I mean, there are three plays that specifically focus on African-American soldiers who come back, but there are also several plays about Jewish soldiers that come back. And the whole idea that, you know, the soldiers are fighting for a country that is presented, at least in, in a lot of popular culture, as being, you know, wonderful, democratic, and so forth. And then they come back and it's not so much. And so the the, the question becomes, um, how do they, how do they square what they've been fighting for with what they actually find? Mm-hmm. 
I think too the um, uh, you know in the 30s when you have the the labor theater and then you have groups like like the group theater um, uh, that are trying to do politically active plays uh, and, and not necessarily always politically a- active but uh, at least really good things not not necessarily commercially designed um and for the most part those kind of ended up failing because as, as somebody somebody said that we quote in the book they were trying to do basically uncommercial work in a commercial milieu and it just it didn't work but by the time we get in, you know in the 50s we start to get the blooming of um what you know became a very very vibrant off-broadway movement and i suspect that the you know the group and the eva of galleans theater uh the the even the early you know the little theater movement the early days of the theater guild they very much planted the seeds for that mm-hmm. um that uh, that there was an audience for um plays that were doing serious things that weren't designed to just pack pack people into the seats um and uh, that that and of course once it becomes possible to actually have theaters uh, uh officially non not-for-profit so that they are not for, yeah. you know that that changes everything there mm-hmm. there's a, there is a place to bring that kind of work yeah well i will wrap it up on this question you mentioned some of the plays that were perhaps emblematic of the time but is there anything and you you kind of mentioned this again so if you want to go back to those those same shows uh that's totally fine but if there's a show from this period that you think would be important to what we see in America happening today that you could maybe do a revival of or have a revival done because you talked so much about the rise of fascism both here and abroad. Um, and perhaps that there is something to be said for from those days for our current American situation. Is there anything that that comes to mind um, that you think would would be especially useful during uh, this moment in American history? Oh, yes. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you You were ready for that question, weren't you, Sally? <laughs> well, I, I, in addition to work on World War II, I do a lot of work on Sinclair Lewis, and so right. um, the, his play it can't his play it can't happen here, which was based on his novel, um, has been a real touchstone in in American society in the last four or five years. There was actually um, a read in of the play prior to the um, last presidential election uh, in in two thousand sixteen um, in Berkeley. They even uh, had a new had a new version of of the play done and that that has spoken to american society in in a lot of ways i mean the novel itself actually went back on the the bestseller list at the beginning of 2017 oh wow what's it about oh i'm sorry what's it about it's 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 about a sort of a person who presents himself as a common man gets elected president and it turns out he's a fascist. Um, <laughs> no, no social commentary there at all that no. applies to American society today. Uh, you know, and most of the people in Congress, if they don't agree, they get arrested and sent to prison. Yeah. Um, and it, and then it goes downhill from there. <laughs> but, but what's great about it is it, it shows that the, the seeds for American fascism are already there. 
Yes. And that this guy just is clever enough to cultivate those seeds. And I think that's why it has continuing relevance, because American society hasn't changed that much. Those seeds are still there. Mm-hmm. Well, this is all fascinating. I, I The book is is wonderful. It's a great resource as well um, for, for history lovers and for theater lovers. Um, so thank you so much for talking about it with me. I am uh, very excited to... Uh, uh, to, to hopefully have people go out and, and read it as well. And as I said, we will have all of the information on where you can purchase Broadway Goes to War uh, in the show notes and in the article version um, of this interview. So, Robert, Sally, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day, and uh, hopefully there'll be something else down the road that we can talk about in the future. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWW Matt. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Ashley. <laughs> sorry. I forgot. I Damn. That. I'm also here. Yeah. Ashley, what about you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at No, This is Ashley. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your Thursday. James and I will be back to close out the week with you tomorrow. Tomorrow.